I really believe what we're doing in space is worth doing. It's not just about the adventure of flying on the spaceship and floating in space. Everything we're doing there is all about improving life on Earth. Why would you not want to be a part of that and then get the ride on the spaceship and stuff? Welcome to episode one of the Big Interviews Astronauts miniseries, in which we sit down with pioneering astronauts who have left their mark on space exploration history. This series of the Big Interview is produced ahead of the Aim Higher Gala, which takes place on the 3rd of May at the Science Museum in London to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Apollo 16 and the future of international space travel. This week we meet Nicole Stott, a veteran NASA astronaut, aquanaut, artist and author. Nicole flew two missions aboard the Space Shuttle Discovery and spent 104 days living and working in space as a crew member on the International Space Station. Nicole's new book, Back to Earth, What Life in Space Taught Me About Our Home Planet, shares stories of her own spaceflight as well as reflections on what she learned up there about survival and crisis management. I'm Andrew Muller and I spoke to Nicole Stott on The Big Interview. Nicole Stott, welcome to The Big Interview. Let's start at the start. It is a pretty common ambition for people to hold, the idea of one day becoming an astronaut. Uh, But do you, who actually became an astronaut, have a conscious recollection of the first time that you decided that this was something you actually wanted to do? Probably much later in life than that. So I was already working as an engineer for NASA, the Kennedy Space Center, on space shuttles, and we were getting ready to get the space station flying. And because up till that point, I really, you know, even from the moon landing time frame, it was like, wow, this is this astronaut thing. That's that's really cool. But that's something other special people get to do. Mm. You know, why would they ever pick me? And and that went on with me for a long time. And I say thankfully, but thankfully not because somebody told me I couldn't do it, right? When I was working at Kennedy Space Center, getting space shuttles ready for other astronauts to fly, and I'm watching what they're doing, it's like, man, you know, 99.9% of an astronaut's job is not flying in space. It's down here (laughs) on Earth, you know, probably sadly to the astronauts, you know, what astronauts want to do. And 80% of it, as best I could tell, was a lot like what I was already doing as an engineer. And so that, while I was working there, gave me this thought, like, well, maybe I could at least consider it. And I spoke to some people I considered to be mentors. They encouraged me really nothing more than to apply. They didn't say, oh, Nicole, you'll make the greatest astronaut there ever was. (laughs) You know, I'd like to think they think that now. That would be really nice to think. But um, they just, it was like they gave me permission to do the one thing I had total control of in that whole process, which was to pick up the pen and fill out the application. That right there, the thing about the that's for other people, which I think is a common thing that a lot of people think about various of their ambitions, Mm -hmm. and and it holds a lot of people back. Um, How did you get past it? Because there is a point at which you have to decide not that I'd quite like to be an astronaut because, you know, who wouldn't? It's it's that whole, actually, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to fill out this form uh, application to be an astronaut. How do you get past any sort of self-consciousness or feelings that you're not worthy and decide, you know what, I'm actually doing this? Well, I think it was, I mean, and maybe maybe it was just the simple thing I needed was for those people that I really trusted, who I, in my own mind, felt like they knew probably a little bit more about me than I did myself, they didn't discourage me. Mm. They just, Nicole, pick up the pen, fill out the application. 
And I felt like at that point, I felt like, man, I better do it because they've they've encouraged me to do this. If any one of them had said, oh, you know, yeah, you might want to try that. You know, tens of thousands of people apply. It's a really long shot to do it, you know. But yeah, go ahead. Fill out the application. If they had said it that way, I don't think I'd be sitting here with you. But they really just honestly, in what they knew, encouraged me to do the one thing I had control of. And, and that, I don't know. That, I mean, I say that to a lot of people now, you know, to young girls, to kids who are questioning what they might want to do, and even adults who are you know, shutting themselves down by not putting themselves out there. I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, just pick up the pen and fill out the application. I think it applies to so many things, too. Nevertheless, once you get to the point where you, you've picked up the pen, you filled out the application, <laughs> you've been accepted, you've made the grade, you're told you're going and you're going, that's a whole other thing, because obviously at that point you have taken on something which is fairly high pressure, not without a certain amount of risk, um, which implicitly elevates you into, into fairly rarefied company of that very small coterie of human beings who've, who've actually, you know, left the atmosphere. At that point, as you looked forward to your first launch uh, in 2009, was there any part of you that starts thinking, have I got myself into something <laughs> that I'm not really sure I want to be in? I think those things are going, you know, for me at least, it felt like those were going through my mind as I was training, as I was getting ready to go. I don't remember being like afraid of launch, afraid of flying in space, afraid of that the kind of mm. thing where people think, oh my gosh, you're launching on a rocket that's got 7 million pounds of exploding, you know, rocket stuff underneath it to get you off the planet. And I think having worked at the Kennedy Space Center with the people who build and really feel like the care and feeding of those spaceships are their responsibility, you know, knowing that, that, that ethic, that passion that was there with that, having trained in a way where every time you're training, you're, they're throwing something at you that's this, this is the thing we think could kill you, how are you going to get out of it kind of deal. I think you feel ready for that kind of thing. There's, of course, the respect, the like, mm. holy moly, this is this is a dangerous thing to do. Why am I doing it? And for me, I think all along, even before talking to my mentors about, you know, and getting that advice, it was like, I really believe what we're doing in space is worth doing. It's not just about the adventure of flying on the spaceship and floating in space. It's that... Everything we're doing there is all about improving life on Earth. Why would you not want to be a part of that and then get the ride on the spaceship and stuff? The thing that I think was worrisome to me was not so much about me in the rocket, but my family watching me mm. strap in to fly on this rocket. My son, who, like I said, was seven years old, my husband with him, my mom and my sisters, you know, friends watching. It's a lot more difficult to watch somebody that you love do that than it is to be the person doing it who's trained and anxious and ready to do it. Your first launch uh, in 2009, if I recall rightly, was delayed for some while by weather, wasn't it? How do you keep what I'm imagining is a fairly stressed head together at that point? I mean, it's it's annoying enough when someone's flight's delayed by a few hours, yeah. but <laughs> you're being prepared to go into space for the first time being delayed by a matter of days. The first night that we were scheduled to launch, we actually went all the way out to the launch pad, got strapped in. And I remember as, you know, the guys are getting you all snuggy in your, your seat and stuff. And just as they were closing the hatch, I remember hearing like the, the announcement at the launch pad and at the Kennedy Space Center, phase two lightning warning in effect for all areas of blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, yeah, we're probably not going to go, you know, go tonight. And 
Um, and that was a little that was a little bit stressful. Like, man, you've gotten all the way in here. You're in the spaceship. You don't you know, you're not even getting into the countdown really to go. But you know that you need to wait until the time is the time is right. And yeah, we had some weather delays. I think there were some technical delays along the way too. And and then when it was right, it was right. And man, you know, the ten nine eight comes and that kind of iconic countdown that we all know. And that's I think that's finally the point where you say, Holy moly, I might actually go to space today. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. You ended up spending, I think, 103 days in space in total over two missions. And this is a, an, an excruciatingly sort of nerdish, naive question about life on the space station. But does the novelty ever wear off at all? Does it ever seem like one of those days where you just think, oh, I just don't fancy it today. God, this again, another couple of laps in this tin can, etc." <laughs> do, do you ever have days like that? You know, I don't ever remember having a day like that. I remember having days where, like, man, I wish my son was here. I wish my family was here. You know, those kinds of things that would have, you know, maybe mixed it up a little, would have been, you know, sharing it with the people that I love, that kind of thing. But as far as the experience of being there, what it felt like to be in that place, the opportunity to look out the window, the work you're doing. I mean, it's busy. Mm. I mean, it's, it's a busy place, too. And every day is something different. And so... I never felt that way. I mean, I wondered when I first got there, like, okay, well, I want to pull the shade down on the window to watch the movie, too. You know, I never got to that point either. It's like there was always something, you know, just surprising that you were going to see out the window, too. So, no, I guess short answer, no, I never felt that way. <laughs> is, is there a particular best view from space? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, I, I think my favorite place on the planet to look at was um, like southern tip of Florida down to the northern coast of South America, just because it was like this jewel box. I mean, just really blues and turquoises and textures that I didn't really feel like I had seen before, experienced before until I looked out the window at that. Um, but every place on the planet is surprising. And it's really cool how, I mean, I remember going kind of through an evolution of looking out the window, wanting to see Florida from mm. space because I grew up in Florida. I considered Florida my home. And so if I knew Florida was out the window, I was flying, you know, to the window to either look at it or get a picture. And then um, getting to know the geography of Earth, like being able to look out the window and say, OK, that's a desert in Australia because those patterns and colors versus that's a desert in Africa just because of what was being presented to you. And then night, night, you know, night passes over the earth where it's like the planet was alive. And there's these lightning strikes that, you know, growing up in Florida, I always thought, oh, storm, it's over the top of me. Once it's mm -hmm. gone, it's gone. But it was this reality check of how everything, everyone on this, in, this planet is interconnected because you'd watch these lightning tentacles just wrapping around the earth and it looked like neurons firing in a brain and then you'd see the clouds moving and the light changing and but this whole we live on a planet thing this whole we're all earthlings thin blue line the only border that matters how we should be behaving like crewmates instead of passengers here on earth 
I don't think you have to go to space and see Earth from space to understand that, to allow that to get into your daily life, your daily thoughts. And, you know, that's what I'm hopeful for in, sh- in sharing the experience in whatever feeble way, you know, I can telling the story is that people will somehow latch onto something in it and they'll just like stand up straighter, they'll look around themselves in whatever place they're in and appreciate the awe and wonder that's around us every day. And maybe look up at the sky and consider it. But really just like viscerally in your life, this consideration of, man, I live on a planet in space, spinning a thousand miles an hour, you know, and I'm just, I'm here, I'm able to live here. And it does everything it's supposed to do for me to survive. That idea is what underpins uh, your new book, Back to Earth, this idea that we are crew members on Spaceship Earth or should aspire to be mm-hmm. crew members on Spaceship Earth rather than passengers. And you you do draw the parallel between planet Earth and the International Space Station, uh, both of them quite remarkable, unusual and, and fragile environments mm-hmm. that require our maintenance so we can survive within them. Um, does the analogy fall down, though, and this is what I worry, that... On the International Space Station, you know that everybody else there is incredibly highly trained, very smart, extremely (laughs) motivated, who understand each other very, very well and who are all working towards a common goal at all hours. That's not really something that can be said of all of humankind. I agree. It is. It's orders of magnitude, right? You're talking about six or seven people on a space station, the tens of thousands of people, you know, in the space agencies helping manage and make that happen around the world and how all of these people are coming together for this. I think it's in us, though. I don't think we'd be doing it on a space station if we didn't have it in us. And so it's what I love about the distinction between crewmate versus passenger. I mean, there's some subtleties in it, Mm. but then there's some really big distinctions between, like, if we all just went up there and hung out and floated and, yeah, I guess we got enough water, you know, how much CO2, you know, headache, I'm dying, whatever. You know, it's a very, very different thing to be passively versus actively involved in your life and the life around you and the environment that you need to maintain to sustain that. And I think we have it in us. And that's why, like, in the book, I'm not trying to give a checklist, oh, thou shalt do these five things <laughs> to be a crewmate, you know? I'm, I'm hoping that people will latch on to something. Something will make a connection with them that's like, man, this is this one change I could make, or this is this thing I could do more that I'm already trying to do that is very crew-like behavior, right? And And I've witnessed it. I mean, I've seen it in my own family where with the things we're even doing, where we start doing these things in our own home, and then we're talking to my mom and sisters about it. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's that's kind of interesting. And they figure out their own little thing. And then you watch it grow out in kind of a community way that I do believe, and I don't think it's like false optimism or naivety to think that we really do have the power to, to come together this way. Is it difficult or has it been difficult for you personally upon returning, at least for a period, to stop thinking like an astronaut and to stop worrying about absolutely every single thing in your life and, and how it works and whether it works? It's just you know, thinking for myself, I, I have a thing I can turn in my kitchen, water comes out of it. I don't know how it works. There's a button I can push which makes my house warm when it's cold. Don't know how that works either. Mm-hmm. If either of them stop, I'll call someone, they'll come around and fix it. And that's what life is like for most of us. Do you have to readjust to that? I guess in in a little way. I mean, I guess I found that the experience in space and having to have that awareness on a daily basis, on a 
every minute of your life basis, I guess, um, has influenced the way I think about stuff down here on Earth now. I think that's what the crewmate thing is, right? Well, I'm turning on the tap. You know, I ought to know where St. Petersburg gets our water that I'm, you know, able to put in my coffee cup every morning. You know, I know where I get it on the space station, and I know that I'm providing some of that directly into the system that recycles to make that water for me. But how's that happening in my own neighborhood? Should I care about that? And I think when you start considering those kinds of things, you want you want to know. I hope people want to know. So I'm not overwhelmed by it, I don't think. I don't think we're overwhelmed by it on the space station either. It's just part of the way you live there. You know, you're making sure you understand how much CO2 is in your atmosphere because otherwise it's not a good thing for you. And I think we can do that same thing down here. That curiosity and, and wonder that you're describing when you think about, you know, engineering and mechanics and, and the natural world as well, it does seem to be a commonality among astronauts that they, they do return to Earth with this renewed sense of appreciation for it. And I'm always interested in the contrast between that and what happens frequently with people who go through another very extreme and dangerous experience, which is conflict. And this happens a lot with yeah. soldiers, certainly journalists I know who've reported from places like that. Uh, they come back to normal life and just find themselves irritated by it because everything just seems trivial and comfortable um, and, and frivolous. And yeah. is, is there nothing of that among astronauts? Not to that extreme. Well, I speak for myself, you know, not to that extreme, I don't think. I think there's, I don't know, there's this heightened awareness that, you know, that I need, at least I need to be in my own life continuing to... I don't carry forward some of the ways that I was was able to live on a space station that I know will make life better down here on Earth, even in my own little ripple zone of it, right? And um, and it does get irritating sometimes when you're like, how can how can that person not know that they're not behaving like a crewmate, you know, right now by <laughs> whatever they're doing, you know? And maybe if they were just aware, you know, maybe if you could just stop them and say, hey, look up and you know, think about the fact that your feet are planted on a planet and you're you know this is awesome and you know it sounds a little bit kumbaya-ish you know I think. doesn't it <laughs> you know it really does it does and yet I think it's all coming down to like common ground kinds of things and um and I and, and again I've I've watched it happen in people that I kids that you talk to in classrooms who you know, you come in as an astronaut and they're like, well, what are you doing here? I thought, you know, NASA shut down when the space shuttle hmm. retired. And you're like, oh, no, we still we're doing the space station. And you give them the app to watch the space station pass over them at night. And they can consider that there's seven people, you know, representing 15 different countries up there. And kids get it. I mean, that's what I like. So if we can get to the children's, you know, get to the kids and get them growing up with this idea that they need to live like crewmates, I think we'll be we'll be in better hands as well. Because this was the thing that was supposed to happen, certainly with with the moon landings that that it was and it was pitched by the United States as an extraordinary human mm -hmm. achievement. I mean, the United States was not shy about planting its own flag on the moon, but I guess yeah, who I guess wouldn't you, be? you're entitled to <laughs> that. You're entitled to a bit of grandstanding at that point. And it's easy to see where that optimism came from, because normally when the whole world is thinking about the same thing at the same time, it's, it's usually something pretty gruesome. Mm -hmm. But that was a long time ago now. That's more than half a century ago. And that 
it sort of failed to bestow that kind of global human consciousness. We did not all of a sudden come together as one at that point. Well, I think there was a sense of it through, I mean, even now when I travel around the world and talk to people, I mean, I get them, you know, I didn't fly to the moon. I flew to the space station and I was on a space shuttle. I wasn't part of Apollo. But people who are aware of that Still, if they were, you know, they're sharing, like I have my watching with my parents in front of the TV with my grilled cheese sandwich story, they're sharing their story, (laughs) no matter where on earth they are, of the experience they had when humans, you know, walked on the moon. And so that's still out there. And I think in the immediate sense after, you know, after the Apollo missions, you know, again, you know, I look at it from within the United States, the Environmental Protection Agency was... Hmm. formed in that same time frame, this awareness that I think was raised in a big way through that reality check of, oh my gosh, I live on a planet, that Earthrise image that is iconic of the who and where we all are in space together, right? And, you know, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, we decided, okay, we don't really want our rivers catching on fire anymore and things like that. And I think back in that time, London, you probably, it was difficult to walk outside and breathe, you know, and you blew your nose and black stuff was coming out. I mean, I remember my husband telling me about, about that kind of thing as a kid. And so I think we get kind of trapped in what's happening to us immediately and the what could happen to us and the kind of this dystopic idea of what could happen to them. But when we look at what's improved over time too, I think we should be in awe of that as well. And now we got to recognize, okay, we made these improvements. They're having this impact on our life support system. Okay, how do we transition from that and discover something new that can help us? And I think space is a big way for us to be considering those solutions as well. All that said, are you surprised by, and it's something we have seen a lot of in the last year and a half or so, of the resilience of anti-science sentiment, of of science scepticism. And obviously the space program has long been a focus of this. And in fact, I can remember when we met in Zurich at the Starmus Festival a couple of years ago, uh, you telling stories about how people would come up to you. Mm -hmm. And and I think by people, we we can just go ahead and say men would come up to you at various events, you an actual astronaut, and try to tell you that the whole thing had never happened. Does that surprise you? Uh, yeah, well, it does, because I, I, well, I just won't go there. We'll find our namaste happy place with that, right? <laughs> it's, it just, I don't know how, I mean, again, you don't have to go to space to to know we're on a spherical planet, right? It doesn't take going to space for that. These things about, I still, I if I, on social media posts every now and the things that I think are just completely just so apolitical, not, it shouldn't be antagonizing anybody. And I'll get, oh, you're a big liar. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you're a big fat liar. You know, I'm like, I'm not fat, you know, and I'm not a liar. And it's, and, but, but these things, it's like, where does, where does this come from? It really, that's the surprise to me is how do people get in that place? And and we've witnessed it. Is there any way of combating it though? Like if if somebody comes to you, an actual astronaut and tries to explain to you their theory about how it was all filled filmed in a back lot in Burbank yeah. and Stanley Kubrick directed it <laughs> and so on. What do you say to them? Is there anything you can say to them? Well, I, I don't know if it satisfies them or not, but actually one of the people who encouraged me to pick up the pen and fill out the application, Jay Honeycutt, who is also the gave us the, these group of young engineers, this philosophy of here's how we can, not why we can't, you know, believing there's solutions to problems. And 
uh, as we were working in the space program, he was one of the engineers on the Apollo program. And, you know, even then, of course, then there was like, oh, this is fake, you know, and stuff like, and he's, what he says that I try to share is, yes, you know, we were barely smart enough to to do it for real. We were not (laughs) near smart enough to fake it, you know, to fake it. And whether that satisfies people or not, I don't know. But yeah, it would be a lot more difficult, especially back then to fake it than than it would be now. I guess one argument to be made for space tourism, that it might cure a certain amount of that sort of scepticism. But that aside, are you enthused by the idea of space tourism? I mean, would you would you go along as a tourist, if only to be the equivalent of that annoying backpacker who goes to a place that everybody else has discovered and says, <laughs> uh, you, should have, you should have been here 10 years ago. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, I would love to go to space again. Um, I'd like to give more people the opportunity to have that experience. Uh, I'm I'm a supporter. I believe that it's in the the path of space tourism, kind of these baby steps of the development that's needing to take place to make that possible, uh, is allowing us to get to that grander vision of uh, building the platforms, getting to space, lifting the industrial things off the planet into a relatively benign environment of space, doing that, and we can in a sustainable way. Like space-based solar power, you know, we could be generating cleanly energy for everyone on the planet from space. And it's going to take, you know, the billionaires fronting some of that to make it happen from the public-private partnerships that are going on with NASA that are working with companies like SpaceX and and Boeing to get our astronauts now to the International Space Station in low Earth orbit, but also those companies are developing their own business models around it that are all based on something bigger than just people traveling to and from space. Your book includes uh, two overarching rules in an emergency, and I I think we can... can speak of climate change as an emergency. And your two rules are crew survival and no freaking out. Um, (laughs) The no freaking out bit interests me because I've always been fascinated by the human urge or inclination to panic. I, I assume it has some sort of hardwired biological imperative but it's quite weird because it, it never helps it never makes it never makes anything better but my, my question is that born in mind how can we apply the no freaking out rule especially to the climate crisis if we think of ourselves as actual crew rather than passengers on this here spaceship earth yeah i think we can parallel it and you know very closely to how we react on the space station, you know, imagine the emergency alarm is going this like really obnoxious klaxon, worse than your fire alarm I mean, and your in, smoke in alarm in your house. You'd yeah, want, you'd want it to be loud. Yeah, you want it to be loud. <laughs> you want to know, and it's going off at three o'clock in the morning. And it was the proudest I ever was of our crew is when those kinds of things happen, where the alarm is going off and it's at that point telling you that all the air you want inside of your station is spewing out into that deadly vacuum of space. You could freak out. If you thought about that a little bit too much, you could start freaking out, right? You'd have your reasons. Yeah. And yet it was so, I mean, to watch, you know, make sure all the crew members are accounted for, getting to the places that we know we're supposed to be to respond to that emergency, treating it like it's real until you know it's not or you're getting it into a safe configuration. We have the ability to do that here, too. We're in a position right now on Earth where the alarm bells have been sounding for a long time. You know, we need to push it, silence it, get our brains together and, you know, and and really and truly implement the solutions that allow you to get yourself into a safe configuration. And then you really go to work solving the problem to try to 
keep that from ever happening again. And that's what we do on the space station pretty regularly. Uh, just a, a final thought on the space station. And it's just that, it, again, it's, a, it's another somewhat obvious question from somebody sitting here seething that his chances of ever getting to find this out don't for ever get up. Don't ever give up on it. <laughs> are, li- are limited. <laughs> do you find yourself missing it? And, and if so, mm. what, do, what do you miss? I do miss it. And I miss the way it feels. There's something so liberating about being in a place where you can just effortlessly move in three dimensions. You can be working with a group of people that you know are all just really positively motivated in what they're doing, that that are living this motto of off the earth for the earth. It's incredible to see that happen, to float in front of that window and experience our planet as our home from that really unique vantage point that you just, you know, you're flashing away, taking the pictures because you want to, you want to capture it for yourself, but you want to share it with everyone else too. It's a really special place and I highly recommend it. I really do. And I'm hopeful that when, I say when, because I'm counting on it someday, get go back to space, I'd love to go to the moon and I would love to have my family with me to do that. Nicole Stott, thank you very much for joining me on The Big Interview on Monocle 24. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was produced by Emma Searle and edited by Steph Chungu. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.